This is the Education Gadfly Show. Well, you've got to behave today because you got one of your bosses and a former boss uh, sitting I here at the know, table with exactly. you. Exactly. And, you know, what does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming my two distinguished special guests and co-hosts for the week. First of all, the original Education Gadfly, Checker Finn. Checker, welcome. Thank you very much. And Bruno Mano, who is a trustee emeritus at Fordham and a senior advisor to the Walton Family Foundation's K-12 Education Reform Initiative. Bruno, welcome. Thanks. Nice to be here. That is almost as long as a title as I used to have in the U.S. Department of Education. Well, you've got to behave today because you've got one of your bosses and a former boss uh, sitting here at the table with you. Exactly. And, you know, Bruno, really one of the founders of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute back in the day. And uh, great to have you both with us. We are here to mark two special events this week. One is the release of the latest NAEP scores, and the other is marking the 35th anniversary of A Nation at Risk. So let's do that in Ed Reform Update. Okay, Checker, Bruno. First, let's start with the NAEP scores. Uh, They came out this week. These were the scores from really a year ago, 2017. And the story is not good. Uh, Some of us have been calling it a lost decade for American education achievement. Uh, Is there any bright uh, silver lining here? Anything optimistic to say? Or is this just glum, glum, glum? There's a little bit. Uh, I mean, there's uh, every dark cloud has a little bit of a gleam of silver somewhere in it. Uh, First, let's note the juxtaposition of nation at risk, which said we were a nation at risk 35 years ago and the flat scores, the mostly flat scores that we're looking at today, Mm -hmm. uh, suggesting that the at riskness hasn't gone away. Yeah. Uh, So I think that's really important to note. Uh, I think the brightest spot in the NAEP results is the bright kids, the smart kids uh, with an uptick in uh, in in how many kids are reaching the advanced level in every ethnic group. Yeah, that's right. And, and at the 10th percentile, we see gains there as well. We see Asian American kids doing very well, especially at that high level. Uh, and there's a handful of states with some good news stories. Florida got a lot of attention. Uh, if you go back to 2013 and look over four years, I have found that Mississippi uh, is doing something right. They're making some strong gains. And when you adjust for demographics, like the Urban Institute does, Matt Chingos and his team there, Mississippi gets into the top 10 in some respects. Wow. Yeah, go Mississippi. But a lot of the discussion has been about why. What is causing the stagnation? You know, keep in mind, this was after uh, the previous decade, sort of the late 90s into the uh, late 2000s, where we made a whole bunch of progress, especially for our poorest kids, lowest achieving kids, kids of color. And we seem to have hit a wall. Uh, about 10 years ago. And the reason that, that the question is why. So, so Checker, do, do any of the explanations make more sense to you than others? Yeah. Uh, the, I mean, NAEP never gives you causal connections, as you know. Uh, and so everyone speculates as to what the cause of both the gains and the, and the plateauing uh, might be. Um, I'm pretty persuaded that the onset of uh, school accountability and the increase in school choice um, and the raising of standards made some contribution, but all of those things have either kind of leveled off or uh, uh, kind of lost their lost their oomph in recent years. And there's been, as you know, genuine pushback against the accountability, the tests, and the standards. Mm-hmm. Um, the choice is still going forward, but it's still um, advancing a relatively small fraction of American kids who need it, mm-hmm. uh, and so. 
I think that uh, we kind of have stagnated. We also don't have much political leadership right at this moment pushing very hard for education reform. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, some people are trying to say, oh, well, this shows that ed reform hasn't worked. I kind of think, I don't know. I feel like it's been a while since ed reform has been moving forward. We've been in retreat uh, in recent years, it feels like, especially on the testing and accountability front. Uh, and, you know, whether the accountability movement ran out of steam, partly in the no child behind days, because you know, it just, the, the mechanics weren't working anymore. Every school was identified as needing improvement. People figured out that his bark was worse than his bite, but, you know, but also under the president Obama, there was some backing away on with the waivers and other things from what some would say was the tough minded accountability, at least school level accountability. That That's the argument people like it's, Sandy Crest are making. And, and he may be right. It's also the case that any given reform can maybe only produce so much uh, gain. Yes. And then you really need a new agenda. You need um, a new agenda. People, for example, yeah. today are suggesting that we've ignored curriculum and an awful lot of what goes on inside yeah. the classroom, yeah. just as an example. And then there's the question about the Great Recession. You know, there is some evidence, Carabo Jackson's been writing about this, that says, look, there, you know, this had an impact on student achievement, that uh, it impacts it by lowering uh, school spending, which happened, uh, you know, around 2012 or so to 2015. Uh, it could also impact the kids. You know, these were kids who were, uh, you know, little little babies and toddlers uh, during the, the Great Recession. Uh, the parents are out of work or uh, other stresses going on. That can have an impact. It could. I'm not real sympathetic to that one, but uh, it's possible, certainly. All right. Well, let, let's go back to roll back the tape even further to A Nation at Risk 35 years ago. Uh, Bruno, first of all, remind us, what was your involvement, if any, with this? Where were you when this report came out? Uh, I was not yet in the U.S. Department of Education. So the report came out before I got there in 1986, but clearly uh, I was in D.C. living here. Yeah, um, The report had a significant impact uh, even on me at that time. I was working for an organization called the National Catholic Educational Association. And while the report was not on um, a topic related specifically to mm -hmm. uh, Catholic schools, private schools, the message was broad-based. It was a report to the American people mm -hmm. and sort of caught the imagination of people who might not have been specifically focused on the issues that were in there, which were generic to public education mm -hmm. at large. Mm -hmm. So I remember it, though I didn't actually yeah. become involved in it in a detailed way, at least the implementation of it till 1986. And it broke through, uh, unlike anything uh, before and probably anything since, in terms of getting the country focused on education. There was a lot of activity that followed, uh, you know, in terms of commissions and uh, laws passed, especially at the state level, new policies enacted. And yet, again, to talk about NAEP, when you look at NAEP, you say, wow, it was a long time between a nation at risk and any kind of improvement nationally on NAEP. It was about 15 years. I mean, if anything, sort of the late 80s, early 90s was really uh, the low point for well, NAEP. Well, the uh, education establishment really, really, really didn't like a nation at risk and pushed back very hard, saying, in essence, this isn't true. We don't need to do anything different. Everything is going gangbusters and things are fine. Uh, and really not until about 1990, anyway, when the governors started getting animated in the Charlottesville business and the uh, first President Bush. Uh, I think it's fair to say that um, uh, we were into the 90s before the uh, sort of let's do something got stronger than the let's not do something. Mm -hmm. Ted, Bell, Ted Bell actually has an interesting anecdote in his memoirs about what led him to do something. He was at the... Uh, meeting of the National Governors Association this summer after the report came out. And in a conversation with governors, one of the uh, one of the comments that they made to him 
was that uh, they found it almost impossible to compare one state to another state. Mm -hmm. Uh, Long story short, he came back to the department and got the department working on what came to be called the secretary's wall chart, (laughs) which was the first attempt to provide state-specific data Mm -hmm. that governors and others could use to compare one state to another. And it was primitive, we'd say today, but it had things, as Checker will recall, mm-hmm. SAT scores, ACT scores, uh, teacher salaries, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But, you know, jump several years later, uh, when NAEP becomes reconfigured based on a lot of the stuff that the governors were asking for, mm-hmm. y- you see some interesting sidelights and stories in, in how this stuff develops and yeah. how things come and, about. And boy, do governors like to compare one another. I, I will say, I, I this doesn't happen to me very often, but I got to retweeted by a governor yesterday, Governor Phil uh, Bryant of Mississippi, Whoa. after I was saying nice things about <laughs> Mississippi. And I noticed that his economic development director uh, retweeted me as well. So uh, there you go. I mean, which makes sense. Uh, obviously, a state like Mississippi, probably, you know, people assume they have a, a low quality education system. They want to share their results. Look, we're getting better results. We're making progress. There was also fertile ground among governors, particularly in the South, actually, even in the 80s, as to uh, the need to do something different. Uh, They saw their states economically stagnating. This Mm -hmm. was true in Mississippi and Florida and Tennessee. Mm -hmm. uh, Arkansas. Arkansas, yeah, (laughs) South Carolina. Uh, And uh, the Southern Regional Education Board was encouraging uh, both change and Mm -hmm. comparisons. Mm And and then the wall chart um, that Bruno alluded to, education establishment hated it even more than they hated state comparisons. Yeah. Which helped pave the way for state-by-state NAEP to be possible. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the debate, one of the debates we always have today is about how much the results are about what's going on in schools versus how much about other stuff. I mean, we talked about that just a minute ago. Was it the Great Recession that is explaining the stagnation? Uh, and again, after A Nation at Risk, you know, it caught the attention because of its language about uh, kind of Cold War language about being under attack. Uh, but then into the late 80s, early 90s, when, when I look back at that time, and you look at very bad achievement gaps, very low achievement, but you also see that our cities were falling apart. I mean, they were on, you know, there was the horrible crack cocaine epidemic. There was, uh, you know, all the, the social ills of the urban uh, cities that really, you know, got, were so bad at that point and have improved since then. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to get at is we have to pay attention to what's going on in the larger society and in, in the larger economy. Uh, and, do you think we've done a good enough job trying to figure out what what's about that versus what's about what's going on inside of our schools? You can never fully sort them out. Uh, there's a distinction worth making between math and reading, by the way. Um, at least until the Khan Academy came along, math was almost entirely something kids learn in school, uh, not at home. Whereas mm-hmm. reading is something that's heavily influenced by what's going on in the rest of their life. Are they reading? Is anyone reading to them? Are they transfixed by moving images on the screen rather than words on a page? Mm-hmm. Uh, that goes much wider than the school. Um, the math results, and it's not unimportant that most of the gains we were seeing back in the decade you were talking about were showing up in math. Mm-hmm. Um, schools were working on math harder than they had before mm-hmm. and being accountable for it. Reading's a lot blurrier as to where those scores come from. Mm-hmm. Not unrelated to Edie Hirsch's point. Yes, Exactly. <laughs> Right, 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 right. Okay, so this question we always have to ask on this anniversary, are we going to be back here in another 5, 10, 15, 35 years saying that the nation is still at risk? What is going to change this trajectory? 
You know, Bill Bennett asked me that question a few hours ago. Uh, he specifically said in 2019, are we going to see anything different from 2017? And I said, things don't change that fast. And we've got an awful lot of flat lines that would have to change before we'd see anything really different. All right. But what's on our to-do list, Checker? I mean, we said, look, maybe accountability ran out of steam a decade ago. Yeah. Uh, curriculum is something that we could go much deeper on. Uh, school choice, charter schools keep trucking along. Is there something else? Is there another part of the agenda that we've been ignoring? Uh, I myself think personalization done right, letting kids move at their own speed rather than in lockstep could make a big difference. Uh, and I think that uh, intelligent use of technology as a better teacher than some of our 4 million teachers would could make a difference. Bruno? Rather than point to something specific, I, I, I probably want to make a larger point here. Just think back 35 years and jump forward now. Mm -hmm. It's true that achievement data suggests that things have been flat, but there have been some significant closing of mm -hmm. the gaps, mm -hmm. uh, particularly between uh, minority kids mm -hmm. and uh, other parts of the population. Um, so it's just a long, hard struggle, and mm -hmm. there's no way around that. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other hand, uh, there are there are things outside of the context of, say, like the accountability slash achievement issue when it comes to measuring achievement by tests that have really made significant jumps forward. Mm -hmm. Who would have 35 years ago thought that there would be now 40-some states with charter school laws and 20-some mm -hmm. states with some variation on private school choice, mm -hmm. spanning the gamut from everything that involves tuition tax credits and vouchers to education savings accounts? Mm -hmm. Those things just don't make themselves quickly through the system, yeah. and it takes a while for some of this stuff to kind of shake out. Mm-hmm. All right. I like that. That's a good way to finish on, on a bit of an up note. Uh, that is all the time we've got, though, for today. Uh, so thank you so much, Bruno and Checker, for joining us. Hope you'll come back. Anytime. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Welcome back to the show, Amber. Thank you, Mike. Do, do you remember where you were when A Nation at Risk came out? I do not. <laughs> I was young. <laughs> yes, as was I. I famously, you know, sent check her letter once saying that I was only nine years old when A Nation at Risk came out. <laughs> dot, Whereas dot, I dot. was a tenured professor. Yes, yes, yes. So here we are. All yes. right. Well, what you got for us this week? <clears throat> I have a new study out in the AEFP Journal that examines the effects of NCLB style subgroup accountability on teacher turnover and attrition. Hmm. We all remember that NCLB required that schools make adequate yearly improvement or progress, not only in overall student achievement, but also in the achievement of various subgroups. So this analysis looked at the initial implementation of NCLB subgroup accountability on teacher outcomes. In elementary schools in particular, they were looking at whether the subgroup accountability for black and white students affected the likelihood that elementary school teachers left their schools or left teaching altogether. So in other words, when they were specifically accountable for particular subgroups of students, whether or not that impacted their likelihood of staying, sticking around or not. Mm, okay. Analysts examined the initial year of implementation of subgroup accountability in North Carolina. Of course, almost every study <laughs> is in North Carolina. Um, they used data from 1999 to 2000 before NCLB was implemented in 0203. And they look through 0304, tracking teacher outcomes one and two years afterwards. They have demographic data on all the public school elementary teachers in the state, 
but they limit the study to black and white teachers as they comprise the vast majority of elementary teachers, 14% and 84% respectively Mm -hmm. in North Carolina. Okay, so North Carolina had a minimum state subgroup size of 40. So in other words, if you had schools with students, a 40 subgroup of students, any particular subgroup, Mm -hmm. they were held accountable for those kids. If you were below 40, you Mm -hmm. weren't held accountable for those kids. Mm -hmm. Thus, they're able to use a regression discontinuity design where they examine outcomes for schools right near those cutoffs. Brilliant. With the idea that schools with 39 tested students are otherwise similar to schools with 40 tested students other than the subgroup accountability piece. Um, And North Carolina, I don't know how much folks know about North Carolina's accountability system, but apparently it was fairly strong before NCLB even came around. Mm -hmm. So they say that the counterfactual is basically this otherwise strong system without this subgroup piece. Um, And then there's 15 pages of all these checks that they're doing to determine that schools did not manipulate the numbers of tested black and white students and that teachers didn't sort themselves on one side of the cutoff or other. So Anyway, rest assured that they did their homework Mm -hmm. relative to whether the design worked out. Key finding, subgroup-specific accountability for black and white subgroups had no overall effects on teacher turnover or attrition. Mm -hmm. But when they look at teacher race in particular, however, it revealed that subgroup accountability did have a significant impact on the likelihood that black teachers remained or left teaching. Specifically, black teachers who taught in schools that were held accountable for black student subgroup performance were much less likely to leave teaching than were black teachers who taught in schools not accountable for black subgroup performance. However, black subgroup accountability did not affect the likelihood that white teachers uh, left or remained in teaching, and accountability for the white subgroup had no effects on either black or white teachers' propensity to stay or Mm -hmm. or not. Uh, Results for teacher turnover, meaning you left the school and not teaching altogether, showed a similar pattern as those for the black teacher attrition patterns. Um, analysts speculate, quote, seeing that black students counted in their schools and that their schools were taking action to address the achievement gap between black and white students may have caused black teachers to remain in teaching mm-hmm. that might otherwise have left. They continue in below cutoff schools, black teachers might have been discouraged by their schools falling just short of the cutoffs and chosen to leave teaching. All this is speculative, of course, mm. But they do do a descriptive analysis to try to dig into that later attrition finding and say, well, was it voluntary? Was it involuntary? And they did find that the black teachers who left were likely to be first year. So it was consistent with schools letting go of their most inexperienced teachers. Woo, did I wow. get it all in? Interesting. Now, let's let's be clear. Yeah. That these are very, uh, somewhat unique schools. I mean, I won't say unicorns, but let, I'm picturing that these schools where you get the findings, these are schools that are majority white schools where maybe you know, there, there's about 40 African-American kids. If, right. if an elementary school is 400 kids, typically we're talking about about 10% of the kids well, are African-American. I think that's fair. Yeah, it, it's interesting. And yeah. so these are, te- these are African-American teachers teaching in majority white schools, the small but significant black population. population. Yeah, and it's, yeah, you could imagine their principals especially saying, oh my God, we have got to improve the achievement of these African-American kids and turning to African-American teachers Mm-hmm. Uh, whether this, you know, w- you know, makes sense or not and saying, please stay and, you know, help us do this. Yeah, maybe. Um, maybe. I mean, we also know that survey data show that teachers and kids are more um, positive about having a teacher of same race. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know that some of those sort of goodwill and good feelings could could translate into um, and, and that match occurring, regardless of what the principal ever said, you yep. know. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think we've seen uh, other studies mm-hmm. where, 
this race match has been um, important, significant, either whether it's, you know, for student achievement or some other non-cognitive mm-hmm. um, outcome. Uh, and so this is this is just another uh, interesting finding. So how does it play out for super subgroups? Now I want to know. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. I know because they're allowed, right? I just was saying well, political. Maybe, they... maybe not. That's the question. Uh, <laughs> there's some debate about that. I don't suppose we know whether these schools that were being held accountable for subgroup performance were doing well with their subgroup performance. Yes, so we do not. Did not look at the performance of the schools or the value added of the teachers, which is another interesting mm-hmm. question. Yeah. If the minority kids, the black kids were doing poorly versus some black kids doing well in the accountability situation where their n group their subgroup size was enough to beat to count mm-hmm. yeah but other studies have shown in general in north carolina that accountability was a good yeah. thing and we've mm-hmm. seen other studies where we saw this bump uh of performance in general when when accountability came to town isn't it interesting that this this happened 15 years ago i mean does this count as history now i mean are these historians doing this study what is yeah, this yeah i know right? well the american educational ah. research association is about to have its meeting in new york yes. and uh probably a study like this won't even make it onto the agenda well yeah, it's, that's, it, that's right. right because it actually has some useful yes. information yes. to provide no they, <laughs> to the world. They, they'd far rather deal with uh, uh who's being awful yes i know. gotta love aefp i tell you i just renewed my membership it was a hundred dollars for a year and it is money well spent because you just get research like this just turn them they turn it out every month so i love it it's lovely yes i love it all right good well that is all the time we've got for this week until next week i'm chester fenn and i'm mike petrilli of the thomas b fordham institute signing off the education gadfly show is a production of the thomas b fordham institute located in washington dc for more information visit us online at edexcellence.net